a major effort to promote small family norms and use of family planning would yield about 25% of what is necessary to avoid catastrophic climate change, with contraceptive technology being far less expensive than the technologies of windmills and solar panels. And yet that important 25% contribution to achieving a sustainable climate is never talked about at climate conferences because, as you pointed out, some people go, oh, population, no, it's too controversial, can't talk about it. But in fact, we need to recognize that countries like Germany, at the advice of their economists, are paying $16,000 per German baby born with hopes of raising the birth rate in Germany because they're concerned about the Pension. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. What's the Earth's carrying capacity? How many humans can live on this planet? If we're above the carrying capacity and we choose to lower our population... What happens to the economy? Do things fall apart? I've wondered these questions. I know the mainstream view gets it wrong because humans have lived sustainably for a long time in many different places, for centuries, for millennia. And if there are models that say that that's impossible, you must have growth when human societies lived without growth, well, those models, they must be wrong, or at least not right in every case. Bill Ryerson starts talking about how we can tell that we're over the Earth's capacity, the dangers of relying on non-renewable things like fossil fuels and oil, It's refreshing to talk reasonably about these things. The media doesn't do it. I hear almost no one talking about these things reasonably. If we're in overshoot, and that means there's going to be a collapse at some point, or our population has to lower at some point, how do we achieve a soft landing, not crash? Bill works on these things. He's thought about them a long time, and he shares them with us because this is what he works on. We also cover birth control, immigration, topics relevant to the environment, critical, but very rarely covered. I find it very refreshing to talk to someone who's thought about these things thoughtfully, and can share about them thoughtfully as well. I also get him acting on his values, things he cares about, but hasn't acted on for a long, long time. As you'll hear, he hits on something in his backyard, literally in his backyard, that he's neglected for decades. We switch from abstract facts, however important, to personal emotions. I think you'll like this episode. Here's Bill. Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Bill Ryerson again. Bill, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming back. And I'm having you back partly because actually here's one of the main reasons is that most of the people that I talk to when I talk about things like population, they come back with, well, we're fine. The population is leveling off. And the numbers that I look at just don't bear that out. And most people, including myself up to very recently, the first thing they think of with population is, is one-child policy or eugenics and things. that, And they don't want to go there. And frankly, also, I'm holding myself back from talking about these things. But when I talk to you, you've thought about these things a lot. You've talked about these things. And I can go forward and not be held back. And so I'd love to indulge, if you don't mind, to talk about some things that... But here's a couple. Take your pick to where to start with any of them. It seems to me the population, the Earth could sustain something like 2 or 3 billion people comfortably. It also seems to me that if the population of the Earth, if people voluntarily chose to have fewer than replacement level children, and I could certainly see that happening on a global level, not everyone, but a lot of people, then I could see the economy doing just fine. Most people, it seems, see 
population leveling off, let alone going down, is, well, we'll lose jobs. We won't be able to maintain the infrastructure. Hospitals will close. Everyone's going to die in childbirth and 30 will be old age, things like that. And so I suspect that you've thought about more about a uh, steady state economy or an economy as, as a population is going down. Uh, and then also I think about, here's one that I, I almost fantasize about, is living on an earth with two or three billion people, being able to get to a place where no one else is and have a little time to oneself. And, and people try to get away and they get away to where other people have gotten away. And now they're back in another crowd again. So these are three things that anything took your fancy about to talk about first or? I'm going to sort of skim across the tops of those three subjects. I've spent a little over 50 years thinking about the population issue. And yes, it has its controversies, but population as a subject or demography, if you want to use that term, has no inherent crisis associated with thinking about it. It depends what one does with the issue. And certainly there are people who have made terrible human rights violations or terrible decisions about population in part because they haven't spent enough time thinking about it. But it is an important subject. I mean, certainly the the statement that demography is destiny exists because population trends and population numbers are very important and they influence a lot of what happens on the planet. Your second point about the ability of the earth to sustain a given population at a comfortable level actually ties directly into the work of uh, ecologist named David Pimentel at Cornell University, who, as an ecologist, said, well, let's see what can the Earth actually sustain on a long-term basis. Sustainability is often misunderstood, but sustainability truly means when you have a lifestyle and a number of people leading that lifestyle, it does not affect the ability of future generations to continue doing the same thing. So if you have people living higher on the scale of their consumption than renewable resources can support, then you have a sustainability problem. The reason population has grown from the two or three billion, which I have experienced in my life, and there are in that scenario of lots of wilderness places one can experience and and a lot less crowds and lot less traffic jams. But the reason we've grown from actually one billion to now almost eight billion is basically the result of discovering oil in Pennsylvania in the 1850s. And oil is such a high return energy source that used as it was uh, in 1918 to create artificial fertilizer and all of the energy it supplies for farming, transportation, heating, everything else. It is oil and to some extent coal and natural gas that has made our current lifestyle and current number of people possible. This would not have happened if we had continued living on pre-fossil fuels before 1850, the oil capital of the world was New Bedford, Massachusetts, and the oil they were using was whale oil. And by 1860, 
they were out of business and had been replaced by the oil out of the ground. And since that time, we have been on a tear using oil to make plastics, to make everything. I mean, there's almost nothing that we consume that doesn't have oil as a component that uh, has allowed the human enterprise to grow way beyond what is sustainable. And when we think about non-renewable resources, including oil, coal, and natural gas, including a lot of metals and minerals that are key to our industrial civilization, by definition, as we use them, we are depleting them. And at some point, yes, there may be a lot of oil 30 miles or 60 miles into the core of the earth, but at some point, oil becomes more expensive to get to than it's able to generate in the way of energy. And so at that point, oil production stops. And indeed, we've seen us as a global civilization come close to that scenario. But then, particularly during the pandemic, oil prices plummeted and oil consumption went way down. Now oil prices are going back up as people get back on the road. But but ultimately, because of the contribution of fossil fuels to climate change, whether we use up all the oil that's in the ground or not, we have to stop using oil because we're going to otherwise be burning ourselves in the middle of the frying pan. And we can't continue the way we have been going. But it's also quite possible that other energy sources will naturally replace oil, including wind and solar. So having said all of that, oil still is very important in agriculture and and in fertilization of fields. And you can't really replace that easily with green energy. So David Pimentel said, okay, let's take all non-renewables out of the picture because probably by 2100, most of them are going to be out of the picture anyway. So what can we sustain? And then the question is, okay, do we want the Ethiopian lifestyle or some other lifestyle? And he chose Western Europe, which is still considerably below American lifestyle in terms of total consumption per capita. He said, on a Western European lifestyle, what can we sustain with just renewable resources? And the answer was $2 billion. So the target goal ought to be we get to $2 billion by sometime before 2100. Now, otherwise, we're going to have a lot of people starving to death and collapse of civilization. The UN Environment Program issued a report in the spring of 2019 showing that the, the top threat to extinction of species and loss of biodiversity was expanding human numbers specifically expanding human farming and expanding human habitation to feed the growing number of people. So the threat to loss of biodiversity is right alongside the threat of climate change in terms of threats to sustainability of the planet, uh, because it's been 3 billion years of evolution of the web of life that makes the planet habitable. And if we continue to eat away at rainforests like the Amazon and continue to cause mass extinction of species after species 
of plant and animal. The planet, along with the overheating that is partly a result of loss of biodiversity, will make, will become uninhabitable for humans. And suddenly we'll find, well, it was it was a great party, but now we're out of beer. So I think we need to think rationally about how do we get to a soft landing where we can continue to live a decent quality of life in a sustainable way. And, and to achieve that, we must achieve a leveling off and a decline in numbers. Now, on the topic you just raised of people wringing their hands over declining numbers, well, sure, we've been trained as humans during all of human history to celebrate growth. The mother of the year is not the one who has the smallest family. The uh, growth of population is something people love to brag about. And yet, in fact, what we need to shift to is celebrating small and declining populations. I've often asked people, if you had to choose between a very youthful, rapidly growing population like Nigeria or an aging, declining population like Japan as a place you would live, which would you choose? And that gets people to really scratch their heads. Well, maybe Japan might be a better place to live than Nigeria. And the reason for that is that, in fact, rapid population growth is a formula for poverty. When people have large families in, say, any developing country, take Niger, the average woman has an average of 7.6 children per woman during her lifetime. And when women are asked how many kids they think is ideal, they say about 10. And men say 13. So they're not trying to reduce their fertility. They just can't afford to have more children or they die in childbirth or other things going on that's preventing them from achieving larger family size. But indeed, large family size like that is totally unsustainable. And that country is running out of water and people are starving. So changing that norm to something where people celebrate uh, smaller family size and, and celebrate populations leveling off and going into decline is something we have to think through how to make that appealing. I spoke at the Global Economic Symposium in Germany uh, a few years ago, and this was a group of economists, and they had some environmental sessions, including one on climate change. And I stood up at the end of the session on climate change, and I said, you know, you've talked about the concerns with fossil fuels and the need for renewable energy, but nobody here has talked about population growth. And the chair of the panel said, oh, yeah, yeah, population, that's important too. Next. And I said, well, just a minute. I said, you know, I understand environmentalists think that population is not a big environmental concern because most of the growth in the world is occurring in countries with low per capita carbon emissions, like in Africa. And the carbon emissions of Americans are much higher per capita than they are in many poor countries. So why worry about the number of people being born in those countries? But the magnitude of growth is part of the rectangle, and the other part of the rectangle is per capita consumption and per capita emissions. 
And you can't just say one side of the rectangle is, is important and the other is not, if you want to calculate the area of the rectangle. So in fact, when you take the median UN projection for population growth from now to 2050, which is 2.5 billion additional people, and multiply that times the average per capita carbon emissions in the poorest countries on the planet where most of that growth is occurring, it's the climate equivalent of adding two United States to the planet. So it's not unimportant. And a work by University of Colorado Boulder professor named Brian O'Neill found that, in fact, a major effort to promote small family norms and use of family planning would yield about 25% of what is necessary to avoid catastrophic climate change, with contraceptive technology being far less expensive than the technologies of windmills and solar panels. And yet that important 25% contribution to achieving a sustainable climate is never talked about at climate conferences because, as you pointed out, some people go, oh, population, no, it's too controversial, can't talk about it. But in fact, we need to recognize that countries like Germany, at the advice of their economists, are, as, as I said in my remarks at that conference, are paying $16,000 per German baby born with hopes of raising the birth rate in Germany because they're concerned about the pension debt they have, the pension liability they have for all the retirees that are retiring at much younger ages than they need to at this point. I mean, the retirement age was set during the time of Bismarck and human longevity has gone up dramatically since then. And people like me are able to work way past age 55 so we can change retirement ages by a few years and solve the pension problem. But instead they're going, oh, no, no, we need to raise the birth rate. Well, in fact, what they're doing is adding to the dependent elderly, dependent infants, raising the dependency ratio and worsening the ability of the working population to support that. Whereas the approach should be quite the opposite. The government should not be trying to influence people to have more children because there are people in Germany who will have one or two children without a government subsidy. But those who are motivated to get the $16,000 are the worst motivated parents there are. They're doing it for the money, and it costs a lot more than $16,000 to raise a baby through to adulthood, just if you're giving them a high school education, let alone university that's needed in an economy like Germany. So the approach to, and there are many countries now that have been convinced by economists that, in fact, Endless growth of the population must be possible, and that'll lead to more consumers, and that will lead to endless economic growth, whereas, indeed, ecological economists recognize, no, it's the influence of and the negative impact of human numbers on the planet is because of their economic activity, and we have to achieve what the Center of, for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy calls a steady state economy, a non-growing economy, where there, through equity, is greater income for the very poor and a lessening of overconsumption by the very rich. 
right now exists on the planet. So I think there is a lot to be said for celebrating Japan, where people live pretty well in the face of a declining population, and recognizing that that's the goal we have to move towards, not endless growth in numbers. This is so refreshing to hear that it, very commonsensical, it seems to me. And yeah, there's a few things of, of just raising the, the age of retirement can solve a lot of problems, especially because work generally gives people meaning. And work these days is not a whole lot of backbreaking labor. It's a lot of service and working with people. And so to work longer is not a deprivation. It can be That's right. a joyful uh, augmentation to a healthy, healthy in, in body and mind life. My father worked full-time until 91 and then went whitewater rafting in Alaska to celebrate. <laughs> I want to follow in his footsteps, although I'll probably do it a little closer to home because that's a long way to bike. Also, immigration is something that comes up a lot because people talk about how population growth is, you know, among Americans, it's, it's, we're a declining population. But I retort, we believe in growth. And so we get that if we have a factory in the United States and we move that factory overseas, especially if we do it overseas because they have laxer laws and so it's more polluting there, we have not decreased pollution. We've decreased pollution here, but we've possibly increased it overall, probably increased it overall. If we don't have the babies here, but we import, the, if we outsource the baby making, not only are we still growing the population here, on top of that, whether we act on it or not, we have the motivation to keep the other place producing a lot of babies and to be a less desirable place than here so that we get the best. Yeah. And this seems clear to me. There's, population is a wedge issue in the United States, but it's not a wedge based on uh, climate or, or on um, environment. But it, it seems clear to me that we should really decrease the amount of, of immigration into this country. And this must have been something that you've thought about and, and spoken about. I haven't spoken about it, but it seems clear to me what to do, but I haven't tried to figure out how to say it in a palatable way. It's a lightning rod issue. It's more controversial, I think, than abortion. But it is, like population in general, an important topic. The U.S. now is at about 330 million people. It's growing its population by a couple million a year. And that's a combination of births minus deaths, which is still a positive number. It's not a shrinking population of, of uh, native-born Americans and net in migration. Emigration is about 200,000 a year. Immigration is, it varies, and it's gone down during, obviously during COVID and during the Trump administration, but it's been as much as 3 million a year So, uh, in recent years. So the issue is from the perspective of the U.S., on one hand, and from the perspective of the planet, on the other hand, what's the best number of people to have in the U.S.? And right now, we're losing farmland in the American Southwest because we're overpumping underground aquifers to water the crops that are needed to feed the current U.S. population. And there are water wars all over California and Arizona and New Mexico and Colorado, 
over who gets access to the water. Is it the farmers? Is it the urbanites? And, you know, there are thousands of lawsuits over water. The U.S. has a real water shortage, and yet the policy has been, well, let's grow the population because we'll have more consumers and more workers. But the issue, of course, has gotten involved or intermingled with race and equity. My view of it is that uh, sort of like some of the people who have given this a whole lot of thought in the past, we need to come up with a number that makes sense and then have it blind to the policy, blind to race, gender, and other factors. Right now, it's not. But in any case, population growth in the U.S., if it goes on at its current rate for a very long time, we will grow from 330 million to 500 million to a billion. And right now, India is a little over a billion. So is that where the U.S. wants to end up in another century, century and a half? And what does that mean for sustainability once we run out of non-renewable resources? And I think it makes sense to plan for the long term, not the short term. So, yes, there are lots of reasons for people to move here. And one of them is persecution, starvation, unemployment, and other factors at home. If I were living in another country and I spoke another language and I had friends and neighbors and family there, I wouldn't want to move away unless I needed to escape an untenable situation. And certainly, I think that is true of many of the people one sees in caravans coming from Guatemala across Mexico. They're trying to escape and get to a better life. And you can't blame people. If if we were in that situation, we'd probably try the same thing. But instead of just saying, well, we'll solve the problem uh, those people have by admitting a couple million a year, which is in contrast to 83 million net growth in the world's population each year. So we're admitting one fortieth of the net population growth of the year of each year into the U.S. And the rest of them are in their home countries and, and not escaping from the problems that, in fact, overpopulation uh, is causing. A better strategy for the U.S. would be to provide massive assistance to other countries, developing countries, to help them achieve a decent quality of life, education, particularly girls' education, family planning, uh, and access to full array of reproductive health services so that people are not desperate to escape from home and move to the U.S. or Europe, but can make a decent living at home. And then certainly there may be labor issues that caused the U.S. and Germany, for that matter, to want to have people come in at certain times. But those also need to be taken into account with long-term planning of sustainability. And so it's not, it's not a simple issue. And for me, the, the thinking on this by Barbara Jordan, now late, 
Barbara Jordan, former congresswoman from Texas, after whom the Barbara Jordan Center in Washington, D.C. is named, is about as good as it gets. She basically said, we set a policy and then we figure out how to fairly enforce it. And we have to do something that makes sense for the U.S. And I think it's gotten now all tied up in right-wing and left-wing politics and racial profiling and a lot of other issues that really don't belong in this issue, but it's made it almost impossible to have conversations about this issue. You said it's complicated. And and for the reasons that you mentioned at the end, I see huge complication. But there was one simple thing that seems, well, I was going to say to pick a number. I mean, to start with a number and realize we, if we keep raising the population, that's a simple thing that it doesn't work. That's right. So at least that starting point seems a simple starting point. Although it is, yeah, I said wedge issue, you said lightning rod, but I'm glad you shared that because it helps me think about these things on a personal level. I'm glad you shared that. It reminded me of something going back before to what you're talking about with um, agriculture and fertilizer. I viewed the Haber-Bosch process of, of fixing nitrogen, of making artificial fertilizer that requires fossil fuels seems to be the limiting factor of how much food we can produce. And is that about right? Is that, I mean, that, that seems to be, without it, there's no green revolution. And not to, I guess I could add in pesticides and the water use and the monocropping, but it seems like that process requires fossil fuels. I don't know if there's any way of doing it without fossil fuels that if we had nuclear fusion, would that change anything? But am I right that that seems to be like the factor, the, the main, the top factor that limits how much food we can make? I think so. There are other factors. You mentioned the Green Revolution. I was good friends with Norman Borlaug, who's the father of the Green Revolution, and he was on Population Media Center's program advisory board until his death. And he created, along with his laboratory in Mexico, high-yield wheat and high-yield rice. And yes, they required fossil fuels for fertilization and pesticide, but these were genetic technologies that allowed for greater productivity of each plant. So certainly those technologies still exist and are still being used to increase productivity per acre. So there's, we get some of the benefits. Some of the benefits of the Green Revolution are sustainable and some are not. I think that's true. Okay. Certainly the high yield wheat and rice, as I understand it, have required increases in use of water. And water, of course, is a limited resource, fresh water. So it's an issue that, as Norman Borlaug himself said, it can't by itself solve the population problem. What, what he said when he received the Nobel Peace Prize in, I think it was 1970, maybe 72, but early 70s, was that his invention had bought the world maybe 30 years to solve the population issue. And if we didn't, then the problem would be even worse than when he released these technologies into the hands of farmers in India, where India was facing the likelihood of massive starvation within a couple of years. And we have not totally solved the population problem. There certainly has been progress. We've gone from 1960 with 10% of the world's couples using 
modern methods of contraception to today, 57% of couples using contraception. So tremendous progress, but still a very long way to go. And still, while the growth rate in the population has come down, still an annual increase, as I said, of about 83 million a year. So we're adding on a daily basis about 225,000 people to the dinner table tonight who weren't there last night and tomorrow another 225,000 and all of those people have an appetite and all of them have carbon emissions. And so we have a huge amount of work that still needs to be done. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Speaking of that work, I want to switch over to what I was talking about before we started recording of the, this technique that I've talked about. I, I'm reading a lot of passion on environmental issues. And when you think about when something motivates you, what motivates you? What, what do you think about when you think about the environment? Not just what the goals are, but what drives you? I think childhood experiences are what occur to me. I mean, certainly... My interest in ecology may have partly been brought about by the fact that as a child, I went on wilderness canoe trips in northern Ontario and got to understand what it was like to be in a place where you could go for days and not see another human. And that kind of experience was quite important in terms of thinking about the fact that there is a David Attenborough type of environment out there that most people never get to witness other than on TV. And probably most people are not watching David Attenborough documentaries, but the beauty of the web of life that does exist is something that I took a lot of interest in. So I think understanding ecological principles and population biology is is something that was born in as an interest in me because of those childhood experiences. I wonder if you could expand on them. In particular, you talked about a beauty. You talked about, you didn't say a solitude, but having an experience that, if I read you right, is only available in nature. And what were the emotions that you felt in that experience? How did it make you feel? That's a really interesting question. I guess a mix of suffering, hard work, paddling up rivers, dealing with mosquitoes, portaging across mosquito-infested trails to the next lake, putting up a tent, cooking over a campfire, fishing uh, for a walleye pike for breakfast, and ecstasy over the same thing, being able to accomplish (laughs) that rather than, you know, sitting on the couch and living a comfortable life, which is what most of us do most of the time. It was something that at the time of experiencing it was both difficult and fun and afterwards very satisfying to look back at what I had been through. 
<laughs> I, I'm sorry. I don't know if I, I laughed because of just this juxtaposition of the mosquitoes and ecstasy and satisfaction. And uh, also this personal, a lot of what you've talked about so far, I heard passionate, but the listeners can't see the look in your face, but it, I'm seeing like a, a warmth emanating from you. Mm-hmm. And something that, that you talk about childhood stuff. And since you said that you lived at a time of 2 billion people, so this is like several generations ago. Well, 3 billion to be more accurate. Okay, 3 billion. And even though it's a long time ago, am I right to say that, to conclude that when you act today, there's a bit of those mosquitoes and that ecstasy in that motivation today? Yes. So the next step is to, I invite you at your option. You don't have to do anything, but I invite you to think of something to do to act on those feelings today and not to fix the world. This is not, I mean, it will change the world in some non-zero way, but that's not the point. The point is to act on those feelings in a way that maybe you, you do anyway, but something new, something, and something that you do yourself, not to motivate others to do it, although that's, that's a nice thing to do. But I invite you to, if you're game, to think of something to do and if you do it, then I'll say, let's have a second conversation after this to hear how it went. So it may be long-term, it may be short-term, but something to do to act on those that has some physical components, something that, that gives you a chance to do something you haven't done before. During this interview? Uh, it would be something that you would, we come up with it during this interview, this conversation, but then you would do it on your own. And I'd propose that we schedule a conversation after you've done it, because then I do this with a lot of people. I'm very curious to hear how it went for each person. Mm. It's always different. I mean, I have to say that you sharing what you just shared is one of my favorite parts of this podcast is I've never heard the same thing twice. Mm. And in fact, I've never heard my, what I, what feels so human to me. Well, the emotions are human, but the actual, what leads to it for me is different. No one has said it. In fact, the person who got closest was an executive from McDonald's, which was like the last person I would have expected. But his description was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty close to me. He's retired head of corporate social responsibility there. But everyone else, it's always, it's always unique. It's always something, but I can tell, like I haven't faced those mosquitoes, but I've done that work and I've valued that work. And it reminded me of my bike ride after high school up to Maine and back from Philadelphia. It reminded me of sports and how much work we put into it and how glorious it was. And some of the games that we won that were the like winning a tournament, I'm waxing philosophical, or I'm, I'm recollecting. I played ultimate Frisbee and we would always play away games because I went to Columbia and we don't have any field space in Manhattan. And there are always two day tournaments, Saturday and Sunday. And Saturday is, is uh, pool play. So round robin, and then, and then the next day is usually quarters, semis, and finals. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got classes the next, on Monday morning because we're all college students. And everyone's away, so people have to start leaving. So usually half the teams don't make it to quarter, semis, finals. So they leave Saturday night. Then after each round, half the teams lose and go home. Meaning that finals is often, especially in the fall in New England, it's dark, it's cold, Everyone's left. And it's just the two best teams are playing to an empty field in the dark. And we're all like totally beat up from playing usually four games the day before. And then this is our third game that day. We got classes the next day. We're all tired and beat up. And, and a couple of times we won the tournament. And the, 
what we have is like the other team feels terrible because they lost. They weren't there because they wanted to lose. So they don't feel good. It's not that, you know, we shake hands and give, a, give each other cheer, but then they're ready to go. And it's not like there's no, there's no fans. And then we just got to get in the vans and drive a long way home. Mm. We're cold and we're wet and we're sweaty and, you know, showers a long way off. And you said ecstasy. The word that I feel is glory. Mm-hmm. The less cheering we had, the more glorious it was because it was just for the the beauty and the honor and the spirit of the game. And you made me think of that. And every everyone I speak to has something different, and yet it connects with something different in me that, but something that meaningful. I'm interested to know what you and the CSR manager at McDonald's have in common with regard to what motivates you. It was. I won't go into too much depth, but if you want me to, I can. But it was in, it's what got me into physics to get the PhD in the first place, that most people associate physics with lab coats and technicians and, and things like that. There certainly was a lot of debugging more than I would. That's part of why I'm not doing it is because of all, all, because of all that debugging. But there's a beauty of nature. There's an aesthetic beauty that to me was very tangible, that the more that I learned, the more that I found these patterns, this beauty, this, I mean, the way I can express it to others is they put mathematicians and scientists in the MRIs and they do the brain scans. And when they show them an equation like Euler's equation or something like that, the same part lights up that when they show, when they show an artist, a beautiful painting or a musician, they play a piece of music and that feeling, I haven't been a painter or musician to know that feeling, but it, every description I've ever heard rings true to me. Mm-hmm. And so that the more that I connect with nature, the more beauty I experience. And that, that was one of the difficult things about leaving physics was not, you know, Richard Feynman said it very well many times in many different ways, but he would talk about a flower and an artist would say, see, you guys dissect that thing and you, you take it apart and you don't really, not physically dissect, but like you, you analyze it and study it. And Feynman said, how is that taken away? I see the beauty, the beauty of the flower that everyone sees is still there. And I think of the evolution of why it came to be that way. And I think of how it looks to the bugs or the whatever pollinates it. And I think of how it interacts with others and and that adds to it. And I kept adding and adding and adding. And that was, that's one of the things. I mean, now that over the years, the more that I act, the more parts of my life get activated and bring that joy. I mean, now I could certainly, I'm talking to you, but over here, I can see my kitchen and like, my experience with food and cooking from scratch, meeting my farmers, hosting dinners much more than before, and then growing over the other direction of the growing the plants on the windowsill. So food is another big one. And, but as I do more and more, turning things off and doing things instead, like right now my fridge has been unplugged for a couple months because it's cold here. So I just put stuff on the windowsill and ferment. And this chutney I have is just, I cannot believe that I made something that tastes th- this much flavor with this little effort because uh, I couldn't put it in the fridge anymore. So I had to ferment stuff. So I keep, and, and every day I turn off my everything and sing now. That's one of the things I'm doing. Inspired by one of my guests who, for his commitment that I'm walking you through, turned things off and wrote a book of poetry. Amazing. Yeah. And so there's more and more and more and more things. But that was the one that I connected with when I heard the McDonald's guy, Bob Langert. Oh, it's a McDonald's guy. <laughs> he also has that. So long answer. I think what what I'm tempted to do is something I never have time to do, which is, as you can see, I just put up a photo of what's behind the house. I haven't walked back there in 
over a decade and into the woods and wilderness that's behind it. So that's something that I would love to do as opposed to, you know, today, five hours of Zoom meetings. Uh, and that, you know, I'm just sitting here doing these kinds of calls day after day after day. And it would be wonderful to actually do what we just talked about and go back into nature. Now I'm going to explain to the listeners can't see what I see. So he did the zoom background switch and it's a stunningly beautiful for, I guess in the distance is a forest. And I think in the foreground is, is probably your porch Yeah. under what is that? Like two feet of snow. And that's what we have now. It's actually, we've gotten five more inches since I took that picture. And yeah, this looks like the sort of thing when I was a kid, it would be get the dog run out and just frolic. Yeah. And my stepfather every day in the house, it's about a hundred miles Northwest of, of the city. Every morning he walks up to the top of the hill, sits there and brings the dogs with him. And he just, I don't know. No, he just does his time alone and comes back down and then begins his day. And I'm, I don't know how much snow they've had lately, but I've, they've got a ton of snow. So it, now the one thing is that there has to be a component of not just of, you know, when I don't just sing, I turn off my electronics when I do it. Mm-hmm. So would you be turning things off at that? Would you be not consuming power that you would have otherwise in doing this? Yeah, I would turn off the phone, turn off the computer and just put on the snowshoes and walk. How do you not go there in 10 years? How is that possible? My excuse is I'm running a global organization. We've been working in over 50 countries and I've kept myself way too busy. Until the pandemic, I traveled every month overseas. I then. I don't want to lead the witness, but I'm, I'm going to be curious to find if this experience of you going in there affects your work differently than you expect. We'll talk. So the next step is to, um, is to make, a, make it a smart goal, which generally means it sounds specific. Well, I guess to make it specific, like we go out every day, we go out once, we go out many times. And for how long? So that when could we schedule a call for me to ask, if I asked you, how did it go? that you've had enough experience that you can say, you know, this is what happened. This is what didn't happen. This is, this was my experience. Well, I'm just coming up with this as we're talking. So I guess what I'd like to say is I'd go out there for an hour and have that experience and then see what I thought and be happy to talk to you about it. Okay. So one time for an hour. Yeah. Okay. Then could we schedule another call after we stop recording? Can we schedule a call for sometime after that hour? Sure. Okay. So that's the technique that I've been using. This is what I call my building block is uh, it's a one-on-one and I don't have time to talk to 7.8 billion people. So it's not, I have then built structures with the building block. One of them is the podcast. So that someday I'll have this conversation and it will be Oprah Winfrey or Brad Pitt, or Oprah, or uh, Sabrina, or LeBron. And I believe that the effect of, oh, that's someone that I know. Someone I know is, is oh, they have, they care too. They're doing something. And I, I envision that Oprah will turn to the camera, or maybe me, when I do the special with her, and mm-hmm. 10 million people are watching, and she'll say, don't just do what I did. If you don't have a a backyard. I mean, she'll do her thing. It, you know, I can't predict what it'll be and nor will I, do I try to direct her. I will just invite her to act on her thing, which might be from her childhood. or might be something else. And I would hope that she would say, or I would say, or we would somehow figure out to communicate. 
sit down with your husband, with your wife, with your neighbors, with someone you care about and do this process so that you evoke in someone else and they evoke in you your you know, uh, paddling up, you know, and, and going, taking the, the, in my case, it might be the, the sledding hill that I talked about on my podcast, on my uh, TEDx talk. Mm-hmm. And when that comes out, come up with something that you can do that you care about coming from inside. I also do consulting with organizations. So when there's a head of an organization, if a CEO appoints a sustainability committee, but she or he themselves, they don't act, the organization, the sustainability committees generally don't really get very far. Mm-hmm. And I find that a lot of executives, let's just say it's a business organization, but it could be politics or other places. I think they tend to feel like if I don't do it perfect, then I'll be, get called greenwashing and hypocritical and stuff like that. No one else is doing it. So I'll just stick with the crowd and wait until someone else does it first, something like that. It's safer for them not to act. And what I find is that the bar is not, they don't have to be perfect. They just have to show that they're doing their best, but they have to show that genuinely and authentically. When they share where it's coming from, you could be the CEO of Exxon and have walked through what you just did, except personal to him. In my experience, that when people hear where it's coming from, they hear the person's flaws and they don't criticize them for them. On the contrary, they say, I have flaws too. I also would like to do more of that. I hope that you succeed. I, would, I want to help you succeed so that I can then also, despite my flaws, succeed as well. So the podcast is growing in listeners, in the renown of the guests, also in the number of hosts. They're now, This Sustainable Life comes out of Sweden and Italy and England and Japan and soon Chicago and coming in more places. And some of those are geography-based, like Italy is for Italy, but some of them are more, the guy in Japan, is he's American, he's doing it more based on engineering solutions. So it's interest-based. And... The one in England, she is forming groups to make this spread without the podcast so that groups can get together and without me or the hosts using the same technique as I do, form groups to do this. Kind of like I I envision it hopefully growing like CrossFit, the gym, where someone opens up a CrossFit gym and then the people around there have a place to... And and if, if I forced you to do what CrossFit people do, you would call it torture, but they love it. Or like maybe like a 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous type thing, which also grows, but it wouldn't be a 12-step thing. It would be, you know, people getting together and having a support group and having people have been through it before and people walking the new people through it and discovering new ways of looking at things, not telling them what to do, but walking through a process that works. Not the 12-step process, but something like this process. And there's a few other applications to this, but this is the technique that when I talk to you, I think maybe somewhere down the road, the influence that Sabido had, this technique would also have. And we're only partway through it because you have the experience to come and the sharing of it. I think listeners may have heard me say that stuff before. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I'll still leave it in. But um, for your consideration, because well, Population Media Center is one of the only organizations I've come across that's doing something that is not coercion-based. There's not what I call management. It's what I call leadership. And... I hope to talk shop about it, especially after the experience and you share it. Yeah, Population Media Center is is um, really focused on achieving what we started the conversation talking about, which is how do we achieve a sustainable planet with equal rights for all? That's really our goal. And we we don't want to do that through coercion. 
nor can we. Coercion doesn't sound like equal rights to anybody, the coerced or the coercer. It really has to be something where people act out of their own self-interest based on what they learn from others in the same way that your audience may learn from listening to people you speak with and from listening to you and say, oh, let me try that. Let me try putting turning off my refrigerator and putting things on the windowsill for a cold month of February, or let me try something else. People get ideas from others, and that's the way true progress and social change happens, not through coercion. If, if to go back a year ago, if Donald Trump told you what you had to do, you might rebel. So it's much better if you're motivated internally than by somebody from the outside telling you what to do. Yeah. If he told me what to do today, I might rebel <laughs> <laughs> against him, I guess, instead of, yeah. I propose that we pick up here next time after you've had the experience and after we stop recording, stay on and we'll get calendars out to schedule the next conversation. Sounds good. I've enjoyed it. Okay. Anything to close with before wrapping up? I think not. All right. Then talk to you soon and stay on and we'll schedule. Excellent. Thanks so much. Rapid population growth leads to poverty, scarcity on a finite planet. It might be a party on the way up, but it's unsustainable on a finite planet, which is what we have. We can celebrate lowering population. Other cultures have lowered theirs too. We can too. I'm not saying I want lower population just in the abstract, but when there are more people on the planet than can be sustained, I mean, we can artificially keep it up with fossil fuels, but that doesn't last forever. It's going to lower somehow. If we choose to do it ourselves, we can do it peacefully, have that soft landing he talked about. What Bill talks about is about the most important issue on the environment. And the solution, when you get it, is not just averting disaster. It's improving your quality of life, increasing your freedom, increasing prosperity, increasing health. Lowering the population is not a terrible thing. It means lower birth rate, but people are choosing smaller families all over the world anyway. It's just giving people a choice and not pushing them to have more and more babies. I'm also pleased to have prompted someone so dedicated and so accomplished in acting on sustainability to find something to act on that he hadn't before and that it was there for decades. I predict that the experience, one, that he'll like it, and two, if he does it, that it'll affect his work, that this will improve how he does what he does working at the Population Media Center. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.